I'm going to read the verses 31 to 46, focusing on 41 to 46. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. The king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And now we continue at verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So far, the reading of God's holy word. What's the worst thing that anyone has ever said to you? Did their words hit you like a ton of bricks? Did they knock the wind out of you and fill you with fear, anger, or sorrow? I've known people who vividly remember the day when someone came running to them with the words, we are at war. The Germans have declared war. What terrible and fearful words to hear. Then again, imagine someone who has been charged with a serious crime or crimes. He spends days, weeks in court hearing the charges, the evidence, the witnesses, the deliberations, and the responses of the lawyers. And when all is said and done, a verdict is finally reached. Your Honor, we find the defendant guilty as charged. What horrifying words. 
15 years in prison, freedom lost, concrete and metal bars for the next 15 years, guilty. What are the most dreadful words that have ever reached your ears? Congregation, I submit to you that the very worst words you have ever heard are like beautiful music in comparison to the words spoken by our Lord here in this text. Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. From Matthew 25, verses 41 to 46, I want to draw your attention to three things in connection with the coming of the Son of Man. Number one, a terrifying sentence. Number two, a surprising sentence. And number three, a never-ending sentence. In verses 31 to 33, which we looked at last week, Jesus provides a glimpse into that spectacular and solemn day. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, all the nations will be gathered before Him. And he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. The sheep will be put on his right hand and the goats on his left. To those on his right hand, he will speak those reassuring, comforting, beautiful words. Come, you blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you for the foundation of the world. But what will he say to the rest? Verse 41. Then he also will say to those on the left hand, I will give you a second chance. If you repent, if you trust, love, and worship me, if you change your attitude, I will bring you into the kingdom. Is that what the Son of Man says, children, to those on the left? Right now you are unprepared, but I'll give you a second chance. No, no. When he comes, the day of grace is over and the door of opportunity is closed. To those on his left, he will say, depart from me, you cursed. Into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why are those words more terrifying than any other words that have ever been spoken? They are terrifying because of the staggering loss. Because of the staggering loss. Those on the left hand are not losing a bag of gold, a truckload of cash, or a splendid mansion. They are losing the source of joy and purest pleasure, Jesus himself. Depart from me. From who? From me. Those on the left who did not trust Jesus are driven from the fountain of living water, the fountain of life, the light of the world, the source of love, peace, and security. They are driven from the only one who is able to give rest to the restless, hope to the hopeless, comfort to the sorrowing, healing to the broken, happiness to the despairing, and a home to the homeless. Children, imagine for a moment being driven away from the life-giving power of the sun, all right? 
driven away from the life-giving power of the sun. Imagine being without its beautiful brightness and being unable to feel its warmth. Suppose you were locked up in a deep dungeon of solid rock, cut off from all light and warmth of the sun, enduring bone-chilling temperatures. How would you like to live like that? Day after day, week after week, year after year. No thanks. Light brings life. Any gardener will tell you that. Without light, most plants won't grow. Light also illuminates so that we can see our surroundings and find our way around. The light of the sun tends to remove fear and offers comfort and hope. To be confined to a cold, dark dungeon completely removed from the life-giving power of the sun would be a terrible thing. Not a person here would choose such a life. But dear friends, being driven away from the life-giving light of the Son of Man is a million times worse. Being cut off from the light of life, from the warmth of His love, from the glory of His presence, and instead receive the opposite is far worse than anything we can contemplate. In this life, unbelievers still enjoy some of the benefits of God's benevolent presence. They share with believers many of His good gifts. They are blessed with the beauty of nature, the beauty of flowers, fall colors, blue skies, the breathtaking beauty of mountains and valleys, of fields, rivers, and oceans. They are blessed with the beauty of music and singing, times of feasting and laughter. They share with believers the blessing of rain that, that waters the ground and causes the crops to grow. They share bountiful harvests, marital companionship, feelings of love between a man and a woman, parent and child. They share with believers recreational pleasures, swimming, skiing, biking, hiking, hockey, social camaraderie, the satisfaction of, of creativity and the arts in building, designing, engineering, farming, business management, and so on. Unbelievers can enjoy, as believers do, the satisfying feeling of work well done. At the completion of a job, they can look at it and say, that's good, that's good, I'm pleased with the finished product, I take pleasure in the design and craftsmanship. Moreover, many unbelievers share with believers the protection of the rule of law. Both Christians and non-Christians can live in relative peace and harmony in this nation because of the enforcement of just laws. Unbelievers benefit from police protection. They can live a relatively secure life knowing that police are apprehending violent criminals, murderers, and rapists and locking them up. Unbelievers also benefit from military protection knowing that cruel, power-hungry dictators cannot simply march into our nation and take it over. Unbelieving North Americans enjoy a measure of national security because of the military. Although this world is under God's curse and all of creation groans, there are nevertheless numerous ways in which unbelievers enjoy daily the good gifts of God. But congregation, consider this. The moment they hear these words, depart from me, 
Every shred of happiness, every ounce of satisfaction, every bit of pleasure and goodness that they experience in this life will instantly vanish. Sometimes, you've heard it, I'm sure, people make jokes about hell. Some will say in a lighthearted manner that they'd rather be in hell than in heaven because all their friends will be in hell. They can drink beer with their buddies, play poker, sing, laugh, party, watch strippers together, and tell dirty jokes and stories of days gone by. When people say such things, they have no idea how terrible it will be to be driven from the loving presence of Christ. Hell will be a place of unimaginable despair and gloom. The moment they hear the terrifying sentence, depart from me, those who have not trusted Christ will be stripped of all pleasure, laughter, friendship, all the good things of this life. No more pleasure from the beauty of nature or from the beauty of music and singing. No more feasting, companionship, love, family reunions, recreation, creativity, craftsmanship. No more protection of the law. No more justice, harmony, and security. Worst of all, those on the left will depart knowing that they will never, never ever experience the smiling, loving, compassionate, soul-delighting face of God upon them. Never! Now, allow me to very briefly expand on something that I alluded to a few weeks ago. Because the Son of Man says, depart from me, we should not conclude that hell is the absence of God or the absence of Christ. That is a rather common misconception. Yes, Scripture does speak of being cast away from the presence of the Lord, 2 Thessalonians 1.9, but that's not all it says. Listen to the words of Revelation 14, verse 10. The Apostle John tells us that anyone who receives the mark of the beast shall be tormented in the presence of the Lamb. In the presence of the Lamb. You can look it up for yourself. You see, these verses are, are best reconciled by, by recognizing that hell is separation from God's love and mercy, but not from God's omnipresent lordship. Why is hell so dreadful? Because God is present. Because God is present. He will be forever present as judge. The real misery awaiting the unrepentant is God himself with his face turned against them forever, unending divine judgment. Dear friends, imagine the regrets in hell. The same person who says on the day of judgment, depart from me, is the one who said with such tenderness and compassion during his earthly ministry, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The same person who says, depart from me, is the one who spoke such kind words of forgiveness to tax collectors and prostitutes who said to the thief on the cross next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. And congregation, consider this. The same person who says on the day of judgment, depart from me, is the one who himself endured the unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of hell in body and soul when he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus endured the horrors of damnation to deliver sinners from the anguish of hell when he cried out on the cross, I thirst. He was not merely suffering the anguish of physical thirst. The thirst that he suffered was spoken of by the psalmist in Psalm 42, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus' cry from the cross, I thirst, was primarily a thirst for the Father's loving, beautiful, soul-satisfying presence. Arthur Pink wrote, His thirst was the effect of the agony of his soul in the fierce heat of God's wrath. His thirst was the effect of the agony of his soul in the fierce heat of God's wrath. Brothers and sisters, the one who endured all this so that sinners could escape eternal thirst, he will say to those who have rejected him, depart from me. And what will be the result for those who are driven from his loving presence? Eternal thirst. Children, do you remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? When the rich man died, what happened to him? He immediately entered a place of torment where he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may what? Dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Did the rich man receive his request? No, he didn't. You see, hell will be a place of unquenchable, burning, ravaging thirst because those in hell will be completely cut off from the shining, loving face of God. There will not be so much as one drop of living water in hell. So why are the words of verse 41 more terrifying than any other words that have ever been spoken? Because of the staggering loss. Those on the left hand will be sent away knowing, knowing that if they had embraced the thirsty Jesus, they would have received living water to quench their thirst for eternity. During his earthly ministry, what did Jesus say? Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. He who believes in me shall never thirst. At the great feast in Jerusalem, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
The Old Testament prophet Isaiah, anticipating the promised Messiah, said, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You see, those on the left hand will be sent away knowing that they didn't have to thirst eternally. They could have been fully satisfied. But instead, because they did not drink of the water that Christ provided, they will be like the rich man, always thirsting and never satisfied. One writer penned these sobering words. Hell is remembering the living water we could have enjoyed on earth that would have taken us to heaven. Hell is a lake of fire, a place of endless, unquenchable thirst. Brothers and sisters, in contrast to this are the words of Revelation 7, verse 16. Those whose robes are made white in the blood of the Lamb will dwell in the presence of God, and they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore, for the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will lead them to living fountains of waters. And so I ask you, this morning to seriously consider, will you live with eternal regrets and unquenchable thirst, knowing your staggering loss, or will you drink of the living water now so that you will never hear that terrifying sentence, depart from me, you curse it? Receive the water of life freely from your gracious Savior, and you will be eternally satisfied. Secondly, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, those on His left will not only hear a terrifying sentence, but it will also be a surprising sentence. A surprising sentence. In verse 42, Jesus said to them, For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then notice the response of those on the left. Look with me in your Bibles to verse 44. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Do you hear the note of surprise in their question? When did we see you in this condition? Surely, if we had seen you, we would have stopped to help. While the sheep, in verse 37, are astonished at the words of commendation, believing the words of praise to be undeserved, the goats are astonished at the words of condemnation, believing the words of punishment to be undeserved. The Son of Man reveals to them five areas of failure. Number one, I was hungry and thirsty, and you gave me nothing. In verse 35, the righteous are said to have fed the Lord Jesus and given Him drink. But in verse 42, those on the left allowed Him to remain hungry and thirsty. They didn't care. Number two, I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. 
In Jesus' day, traveling was often dangerous and difficult. Inns were not pleasant places. They were often dirty and crime-ridden. But for travelers to sleep in the open could be even more risky. In verse 35, the righteous are said to have invited Jesus into their home, showing him warm hospitality. But in verse 43, those on the left allowed him to remain on the cold street. Number three, I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. Clothing could be costly. To clothe a stranger could be quite a sacrifice. In verse 36, the righteous are said to have clothed the Lord Jesus. But in verse 43, the unrighteous left him shivering in threadbare rags. Number four, I was sick, and you did not look after me. Medical care was certainly not what we have today. There was no great health care system. In verse 36, the righteous are said to have cared for the sick Jesus. But in verse 43, the unrighteous left him to suffer. Number five, I was in prison, and you did not visit me. In verse 36, the righteous are said to have visited him in prison. Now, prisons in the ancient world were dark, dismal places. Most people avoided them, if at all possible. Nevertheless, the righteous, overlooking the squalor of the prison, came there to visit Jesus. But in verse 43, the unrighteous avoided that miserable place and left him in his loneliness. Now, brothers and sisters, when the Son of Man sets forth his case against those on the left and points out these five areas of inexcusable failure, they're surprised. Lord, when? Surely, if we had seen you in such a miserable state, we would have offered a hand. But what's the king's response? Verse 45. Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did not do it to me. Now, congregation, do the words of verse 45 mean that those on the left never did such things? Surely there are many unregenerate people who do great humanitarian works and wonderful things for the poor. Many of them volunteer at shelters and serve at soup kitchens. In the bitter cold of winter, there are non-Christians who will give coats, gloves, hats, scarves, and sleeping bags to homeless people. There are atheists who help build houses in third world countries after earthquakes. They assist in directing the distribution of food after tsunamis. There are some who have opened their doors to homeless people. There are non-Christians who have started orphanages, hospitals, dental clinics, and eye clinics in poverty-stricken countries. They have started counseling programs for prisoners and assistance programs for the families of prisoners, providing food, clothing, shelter, Christmas presents, and medical care. There are some non-Christians who have given away literally millions of dollars to feed the poor in Africa or to drill wells to provide fresh water for those who are drinking filthy, contaminated water, water that often kills their children. 
We can be thankful that there are some compassionate, tender-hearted atheists in this world. The congregation, the Bible teaches that feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty, hosting the stranger, clothing the naked, caring for the sick, and visiting the prisoner will not of itself bring anyone into the kingdom of heaven. While the world does not like to hear it, the fact is there will be great humanitarians in hell. There will be charitable, friendly, helpful, and kind people in hell. You say, why? That sounds unfair. Why would helpful, kind, generous people end up in hell? Because the Bible says, Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. The Apostle Paul insists that the entire human race, with the exception of Jesus, is under sin. That is, the entire human race is controlled by our sin nature so that no one is righteous and no one does good. In our fallen state, we never do a single good thing. Well, then what about all the noble works I just mentioned? Don't unbelieving people perform many good deeds? They are certainly good from man's perspective. However, they are not deemed good in the ultimate sense. Why not? Because when God evaluates actions, he considers not only their outward deeds, but also the motives behind their deeds. One theologian said this, the supreme motive required of everything we do is the love of God. A deed alienated from God is not deemed by God a good deed. The whole action, including the inclinations of the doer's heart, is brought under the scrutiny of God and found wanting. In Lord's Day 33, the Heidelberg Catechism asks the question, what do we do that is good? It gives a helpful answer, doesn't it? The answer is this, only that which arises from out of true faith conforms to God's law and is done for His glory and not that which is based on what we think is right. Therefore, when the nations are gathered before the Son of Man, there will be those put on his left hand who may have done many helpful things for their fellow man. Yet before the scrutiny of Almighty God, their works do absolutely nothing to merit his acceptance. Depart from me, for you have never trusted my sacrifice for sin. You have not served out of love and gratitude to me. You have not cared for my needy children out of true faith. You have not labored according to my law and for my glory. Congregation, how many people will be totally, utterly, completely surprised by the sentence of verse 41? Lord, when? When did we see you hungry, thirsty, and in need, and did not help you? 
Oh, you saw me all right, but you didn't recognize me. I was there, but you were not acquainted with me. You didn't recognize me in my people because you haven't trusted me. You haven't believed in me as Savior and submitted as Lord. Yes, you fed some hungry people and built houses with Habitat for Humanity. Yes, you gave to your local hospital and the Cancer Society, but in the midst of all your activity, you never recognized me. You have not ministered to the people of Christ out of love for Christ, according to the word of Christ, following the example of Christ, and for the glory of Christ. Depart from me. Depart from me. And then finally, point number three. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, those whom he puts on the left hand will not only hear a terrifying and surprising sentence, but also a never-ending sentence. A never-ending sentence. Look with me in your Bibles to verse 46. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Some people have great difficulties with the idea of eternal suffering. They maintain that eternal suffering is a punishment that exceeds the seriousness of the crime. But in verse 46, the same word is used to describe the duration of the Christian's life in heaven and the duration of the unbeliever's punishment in hell. The same word is used for both eternal punishment and eternal life. We may not like the idea that a sinner's punishment is eternal, but that is what the Bible teaches. It is a punishment that is incomprehensible. But is it a punishment that is more severe than the crime? No, it isn't. God is incapable of inflicting an unjust punishment. But sins committed against an infinite God are infinitely grievous and require eternal punishment. God is merciful, but He is also just. Therefore, His justice requires that sin, which is committed against the most high majesty of God, be also punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Congregation, one of the most frightening aspects of hell is its eternality. Its eternality. Hell is a place of misery and suffering from which there is no escape and no relief. A person can endure great suffering if he sees light at the end of the tunnel, right? For example, there are those who have suffered incredible trials in concentration camps. They were beaten, made to work like slaves, given very little food, and many lived in conditions unfit for animals. But every once in a while, a secret message would be brought into the camp that the Allies were advancing, the Nazis were retreating, their, their strategies were failing. 
For the prisoners in the camp, such news provided strength to persevere. Perhaps just a few more months or weeks or days and the enemy may be crushed and our suffering will come to an end. And even if the enemy is not crushed in the near future, there's still hope of escape. If we plan extremely well, be careful and patient, observe the movements of the guards, observe the weak spots in the camp, perhaps we can escape this terrible place of suffering. Others have escaped in the past, and perhaps we can as well. Congregation, this hope, this light at the end of the tunnel, will never be known by the lost in hell. It is a place of suffering from which there is no escape and no relief. And the company in hell is not encouraging. Verse 41 says that the eternal fire of hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. In other words, the unsaved will dwell forever with the God-hating devil and his rebellious angels. There will be no love, no kindness, no friendship between the lost and the fallen angels. Imagine spending eternity with evil spirits whose one goal ever since the fall, their fall from honor has been to resist the living God and cause sinners to share their suffering forever. An old Puritan writer said, I quote, Who shall describe the misery of eternal punishment? It is something utterly indescribable and inconceivable. The eternal pain of body, the eternal sting of an accusing conscience, the eternal society of none but the wicked, the devil and his angels, the eternal remembrance of opportunities neglected and Christ despised, the eternal prospect of a weary, hopeless future. All this is misery indeed. It is enough to make our ears tingle and our blood run cold. It is enough to make our ears tingle and our blood run cold. Congregation, could there be someone here in our midst who will hear this terrifying, never-ending sentence, depart from me? On the final day, there will be those who have heard Jesus' gracious invitation, come to me, but they would not come. Consequently, the judge will say, depart from me. I called you. I endured the, the anguish of hell on the cross so that sinners could be rescued from it. I said to you, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I warned you, gave you my word, sent my messengers, and spoke to you through your parents, your elders, and your teachers. But when I said, come, you would not come. Now you must go away into everlasting punishment. Dear friends, if any of you are forever lost on that final day, who will you blame? 
Jesus is a gracious, willing, and able Savior. But if you harden your heart and resist the call of the gospel, you sit in church, but you do not repent. If you are raised in a Christian home, but do not receive the good news, if you are baptized and taught in Sunday school and catechism, but suppress what you know to be true, who will you blame when the judge of all the earth sends you away into eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth? You will have no one to blame but yourself. And you will suffer eternal regret. Therefore, I say to you, run to Jesus who alone can deliver you from the wrath to come. Find refuge at the cross where he was cursed in your place so that your ears will never hear this terrifying, irreversible sentence. But then knowing your salvation and acceptance through faith in Jesus, pray that God will use you to show others the way of life. Having been rescued from everlasting torment, you now have the privilege and the responsibility to show others the way. What joy there will be on the final day to discover that your loving warning and careful, caring testimony was used by God to rescue the man at work, the lady next door, the customer at the shop, the child across the street, the senior woman at the grocery store, the plumber who fixed your kitchen drain. What a thrill it will be to see them at the right hand of the king, receiving their inheritance and celebrating before the throne of God. Congregation, having been rescued, having known the great love of your Savior, Use the opportunities that God gives you to minister to others so that by the grace of God, they may join you at the right hand to eternally glorify the Lamb that was slain. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Amen? Let us pray. Once again, our Father, you have set before us some very solemn words. We do pray and plead with you here this morning that each and every one of us here would be part of that great assembly among the sheep at the right hand to enjoy you and glorify you forever. Lord, it's a terrifying thought that there may be some on that final day at the left hand who have heard the gospel and have heard the gracious invitation and have heard of the thirsty one who was cursed for sinners. And even though they had the knowledge of salvation, they refused it. 
Oh Lord, what a terrible thought that is. The eternal regrets for such people at the left hand. We all deserve that everlasting curse. There is not a person here who could in any way merit your blessing, merit the joy of being at the right hand. We thank you for the one who is worthy, the thirsty one who took our place and bore our hell. Lord, the message of the gospel is truly amazing. That we who deserve eternal condemnation are granted the gift of eternal life through faith in him. He accomplished for us what we could not accomplish and provided for us a place in the Father's house. We are no better than anyone else. We worship you for your grace, your mercy, your love. And that love and glory that we can bask in for eternity. Oh, what a wonderful gift. We praise you, our God. Will you convict us all to run to Jesus Christ and there find everlasting hope, joy, and refuge. In his name we pray.